as they're making their way down, we'll find our scripture this morning in Romans chapter 15. If you are able, would you stand for the reading of the word of the Lord this morning? Chapter 15, we'll begin at verse 1. We then who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, leading to edification. For even Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the reproach of those who reproach you fell on me. For whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we through the patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. Now may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another according to Christ Jesus, that you may with one mouth or one mind and one mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Father, would you help us to do exactly as this text says, with one mind and one mouth, to glorify you. Oh, Lord God, we have much to praise you for. Lord God, we ask for your help this morning. We beg for the presence of the Spirit of God. Lord, open to us the way of life. Lord, show us the glory of salvation. And Lord God, help us by your Spirit, transform us into maturity of Christ. May we grow up into him. And Lord, we can't do this on our own. Lord, we need your grace which you give to us, and we need your spirit, which you've given to us. God, help us, Lord, this morning. Open our eyes, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. If I ask you this question that I'd like to pose this morning, if, think about it for just a moment. What does it mean to be great in the eyes of God? That's a very probing question. It's, I think it's a very important question. What does God consider great? I think most of us have hardwired into us. We desire to be great. We desire to have our lives count for something. I don't think anyone says that they simply wish to waste their life. Perhaps another way you could pose this question is, what does success in the kingdom of God look like? What is it that pleases him? Or what is it that would cause God to smile? And that's the question we want to try to answer this morning. And as we begin to do so, we need to understand that the Apostle Paul is not beginning a new thought in chapter 15. I've said this many times, but chapter and verse divisions were not inspired. They're not a part of the original autographs. And sometimes they artificially break a thought, and I think they do here. Instead, the thought is actually carried over from chapter 14. In chapter 14, Paul had been discussing non-essential matters, or we might even call them gray matters. Matters upon which Christians may lawfully disagree. That means you both can have an opinion and both of you hold it tightly and not be wrong. You can have legitimate disagreement because these are not sin issues. These are wisdom issues. And Paul has been holding out in this whole chapter and section of Scripture two dynamic principles. There's a principle of freedom, and then again the principle of love. 
Now the principle of freedom says that the Christian is free because of Christ's work and he's no longer in bondage. Amen. He's no longer in bondage to the law. But this does not mean the Christian is, is without law to God. So many try to say that, like there's no more anything that's binding upon us. Of course, you and I are still obligated to obey God, seeing that he is Lord. Jesus said, why do you call me Lord and do not the things which I command you? It's just, it doesn't make sense. It's nonsensical. So the Christian, I would say, is never free to do as he pleases. And he is now free to do as the Lord pleases. So the moral law, the moral law of God is still binding. What do we mean by the moral law? Well, the moral law are those eternal truths. We kind of find a summary there in the Decalogue in Exodus 20, known as the Ten Commandments. Do not lie, do not steal, do not commit adultery. All those are still binding upon us as the people of God today. That was not abrogated when Christ died. But the Christian is free regarding the ceremonial and civil uses of the law. What do I mean by that? So that means someone in Christ is no longer under the old covenant as a way of life. So the, all those rituals that the Jewish community had to perform, those puritary laws, those dietary laws and restrictions, they're not binding upon you. They're not binding upon any new covenant believer. But although we are free from the law, we are not to use this freedom that has been given to us as an occasion to do what we want, as an occasion to the flesh. Over in Galatians, Paul clearly addressed this in chapter 5. He says, for you brethren, you have been called to liberty, you have been called to freedom, you are free in Christ. Only do not use this liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but rather through love serve one another. What does he mean to use this liberty as an opportunity for the flesh? Well, there are some Christians, and they reason it this way. I love to sin, God loves to forgive, so that makes a perfect harmonious relationship. So let's do that. And Paul said, absolutely not. You do not have any moral grounding there. So as you can see here in Galatians 5.13, the principle of freedom, it is there. You are free, but it is guided, it is directed by a greater principle. The principle of love. So we are gloriously free because Christ has paid that ransom for our emancipation. Our, our, our bondage to sin has been broken. The penalty of sin has been atoned for. The power of sin no longer holds sway over us. We don't have to do its bidding. And Paul's coming to the church at Rome. He went to the church at Galatia. He would say to the church at Mamre the same thing. You, believer, are not to use this new blood-bought freedom for yourself as an occasion to do what you want. You are free, but this freedom is a freedom to serve now your brother. So greatness in the kingdom of God is found in service. It is found in humility. It is found in self-abasement. In Matthew 20, beginning in verse 25, our Lord, the master teacher, he said, Jesus called them, that is his disciples, to himself, and he said, take a look around you. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles, those are the, not the people of God, lord it over them. They're, they're generals, they're superiors, they, they make a class distinction. And those who are great exercise authority over them. 
Yet it shall not be so among you. Whoever desires to become great among you. So that's the question. What does kingdom greatness look like? You want to be great in the eyes of God? Let him be your servant. And that servant is probably too weak of a word. It's the Greek word doulos and it means slave. You want to be great? And the Greek word there is megas. You want to be a megastar in God's kingdom? Then you be a slave. You be the chief servant. Whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as a son of man did not come to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. So Paul, back in Galatians, we just looked at that. He's talking about don't use this freedom as an occasion to the flesh, but rather through love serve one another. That word serve is very interesting. I just told you that the word servant is the Greek word doulos, slave. This word serve is not the word diakonos where we get the word deacon. It's actually the word douyuo, meaning to serve in slavery to another. It is to be in bondage to another person. Okay, So the irony that Paul is using is very rich here, and I don't want to bore you with words, but I think this is pretty neat. The Christian used to be a slave, a doulos to sin. But he has been freed from that slavery, that douyuo. So now he might serve, same word here, douyuo, his brother. So one type of slavery is exchanged for another type of slavery or service. And what do we mean by that? Paul is very clear here. He says we go from slaves to sin to slaves of righteousness. Slaves of self to slaves of God. But either way, you are in service. You are not um, in bondage because you're free, but it's a freedom to serve God where sin had once enslaved you. So all the good works, all right, our service to God is going to be seen how? How is God, how are we going to show that we are servants of God? Well, Ephesians 2.10 says that we walk in the good works that God has before ordained that we should walk in them. So the Christian is going to produce good works. Who needs your good works? Not God, but rather your brother, your neighbor. Your church, fellow church member here. So when we talk about kingdom greatness and what it is to be great in the kingdom of God, you have to understand it's going to be in service to your brother, but you also have to understand what is the kingdom of God really like? Well, suffice it to say, the kingdom of the heaven, if you want, the kingdom of God, all those are synonyms, it is radically opposed and different from the kingdom of man. Now, Christians, listen, we are citizens of heaven, and yet we live here on this earth. So it's, kind of, a, it's a, kind of a weird relationship. We know that our ultimate life is there, and yet we still live in this kingdom of man. We still have civic responsibilities and duties. But the problem comes, everything around us is telling us to be like the culture. Everything. And now we want to hear, what really is the kingdom of God like? What's not like anything you've ever known? The kingdom of man is exactly what the Lord Jesus said it was. It's full of bravado. Those who have power, they really want to exercise it. They like titles. They like people serving them. They like having all the pomp and circumstance around them. So there's bravado. There's a brashness there. They're brazen. Self-confidence, a self-made man. Self-assertiveness. And these are highly esteemed. These are all sought after in the kingdom of man. You want that general to be like that. 
In man's kingdom, each one would serve his own self-interest. But then Jesus comes on the scene and he starts explaining about the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. Well, what is God's kingdom like? That's what I have an interest in. Well, it's self-denial. It is humility. And by the way, it is service to others that would mark one great in this. So if you are great in the kingdom of God, you will look paltry in the kingdom of man. If you are great in the kingdom of man, you will be cast out of the kingdom of God. All of those things that the world aspires to and esteems bars you from the kingdom of God. We do well to look at this this morning. So why such a stark difference? I mean, it's like the two things are just radically, diametrically opposed, and they are. And you say, why? Well, you know, I know as Christians, you know the pat answer. Well, it's sin, Pastor, of course. But we don't think just how pervasive the effect of sin really is. How has sin affected all mankind? It was radical. A radical effect, a radical depravity took place. Man's understanding, the way he thought, was now darkened. He no longer, the natural man, no longer can reason correctly. But not only that, his emotions, his affections were disordered. His will is, became enslaved to his fallen nature. Additionally, man, because of the fall, was separated from God. So, Mankind, who is created to be in communion with God, finds himself now alienated from God, and man is spiritually dead. There's no life of God in him at all. As a result, there arose this division, this hostility between God and his creation. Man, being a rebel, was now at war with God. And we don't like to think that. No one said, oh, I was never at war with God. Yes, you were. In your natural state as a sinner, you were at war with God. And since our relationship with God was fractured, there was also a fracturing of human relationships. So now we have relationships no longer flow effortlessly or harmoniously as they were originally intended. Because man's vertical relationship was severed, this has tremendous implications for our horizontal relationships. You ever wonder why are there problems in marriage? Why is it so hard? We go back to the fall of man. Parent-child relationships. I mean, why can there be animosity between a parent and a child? Go back to the fall. Friendships, siblings, in the church, in work. But it's not just personal. What about corporate? What about nations? What is it causing right now turmoil in our world? It all goes back to that fateful day in Genesis 3. There is disorder all around us of the most egregious kind because man sinned. And because that all mankind has been born guilty and corrupt. Man is born guilty. We don't think about this and this is not taught. What do we mean that the, that the baby is born guilty? As cute as Kate Bowling is, she was born guilty. The imputed sin of Adam was given to her. She is born with original sin and at animosity with God. But not only is there guilt, there's now corruption. All men are born corrupt. 
Our nature is fallen, and this affected every part of our life so much that we call this a total depravity, a radical depravity. It has tremendous implications for the way you are married, the way you parent, the way that we come into the church. Man's blind. He's ignorant to spiritual matters. But here's the real problem. You want to, let's go basic here. The real problem with man and the sin, if you say, what has caused all the problems in this world? Here's the answer. Man is born selfish. He is bent inwardly on himself. Theologians use a Latin term. It's incurvatus in se. Incurvatus, curved inwardly. It's a Latin phrase, and it means you, man is bent inwardly toward himself now. All he sees is his own. It was, the, it was the great theologian Augustine who first used this term. Later on, Martin Luther would also pick it up. But what do we mean when we say that man is incurvatus? Here's what it means. In his pride, he has turned from God toward himself. And friends, this is every one of us. Everyone from Adam on, all of us, have been bent inwardly toward ourselves. Isaiah wrote of this. All we like sheep, we've, what, we've gone astray. What, what do you mean, Isaiah? We've turned every man to his own way. Paul picked up that same theme in Romans 3. There's none who understands. There's none who seek after God. None. No one's seeking after God. They've all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There's, none who does, there's no one who does good, not at one. So the very essence of sin that has created all the conflict, all the chaos, and all the wars around us is that mankind is now bent away from God and he's bent inwardly toward himself. That's the problem, which is why we need a new birth. We need a do-over, if you will. So we no longer sought for life and peace and harmony in God. Instead, we looked elsewhere. So we go from this Godward orientation that Adam had before his sin to a self-orientation and the result, it's chaos. It's devastation. And there is hopelessness. There's despair right there. If the story ended there, it would be absolutely tragic. But that's not the end of the story. God, in his love, he sends his son, the second Adam, as Paul would call him, to undo and fix what the first Adam lost in the fall. And here, Christian, here's really good news. In Christ, sinful man is reborn. Now, don't lose sight of that just because you've heard this all your life. You're reborn. The sinner is given new life, eternal life, the very life of God himself. By God's grace, you and I, we die with Christ. We died with him. And we are raised to newness of life. That's what our baptism represents. So what do you mean? We leave the old life of Adam. We leave it behind. And we're reborn to new life in Christ. And the Christian is given a new nature. 2 Corinthians 5.17 One which now delights in God and delights in His holiness. We're even told by John, the great apostle, that the seed of God remains in the child of God. I take the seed of God to be the Holy Spirit. 1 John chapter 3, verse 9. Whoever has been born of God does not sin, John writes. For his, that is God's seed, remains in him. And he cannot sin because he's been born of God. I don't have time to unpack that. We'll do that another time.
But suffice to say, if you are reborn, the seed of God is in you. So the Holy Spirit then changes man's nature, changes man's orientation from incorvatus to excorvatus. He goes from inward to himself to outwardly focused. So the natural man, this is the man without Christ, inwardly, incorvatus, that causes him to use everyone and serve no one but himself. You ever meet people who say they are so self-centered, all they care about themselves? Narcissist. We hear that term all the time now. It's a person who only thinks of themselves. By the way, that's a sinner. But through the new birth, sinful man is reborn into Christ, and he is now ex curvatus exe. He is now curved outwardly away from himself. And this is really good news because it means it's an orientation of life that's lived outward for the glory of God and the good of our neighbor. See, the glory of God goes hand in hand with the good of our neighbor. So how does this grace change us? How does the grace in Christ change us? What is the essence of gospel transformation? It's to go from being inwardly focused and self-centered to outwardly focused on God and others. You go from incravatus to excravatus. We're new creatures in Christ. But the sin nature, that old you, did not go away, but he was rendered inoperative. Okay. Meaning the power of sin's been broken. So the flesh, the old you, I would say the incravatus you, he no longer has power over you. You don't have to obey him. He, but he still lifts his voice to get you to seek to obey him. And many, many Christians listen to that voice. And you're saying, but pastor, how can you tell who is listening to the old man? It is easy to spot. They are the ones who seek to be served rather than serve. They're self-centered still. They want everyone to serve them. It's their interest. It's their my own viewpoint. They never stop to consider anyone else's. They are the ones in Romans 15 that flaunt their liberty regardless of the damage it is doing to their brother. If you know something is causing your brother spiritual harm, even if you have the right to do it, Paul says in love, stop it. And that was exactly what was taking place in Rome between these two groups. There was a division, contention between strong believers whom Paul sided with theologically, they are right, and weak brothers who had incredibly sensitive scruples and a conscience. So the strong brothers, they understood that Christ had set them free. And brothers, they enjoyed this freedom as they should. But they began to use the freedom for self-indulgence. So they're exercising this freedom that's given to them, but at the expense of their brother's welfare. It did not matter to them that some of their own brothers in the church were being harmed by their actions. And friends, that should alert us. That's a problem. So what was Paul's solution? We come to our text. And that was a long introduction, but the message will be shorter. We then who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, leading to edification. So what he's saying here, the strong Christian has a moral obligation, a spiritual command to bear with and help those who are weaker in the faith. We don't get to turn down our noses and say, oh, that poor little guy, that legalist, he's just overly sensitive. No, Paul said there's a moral imperative here. Help him. Carry him along. Bear his infirmities until he is no longer weak. Help him see the truth. Now, what 
are these burdens, these weaknesses? Here, the New King James called them scruples. The King James calls them infirmities. And that's the right word. It means sickness or weakness. This takes place many things. So how do we help our weaker brothers? They may be weak in the faith. That's what was happening here in Romans 15. They had these strict scruples about not eating meat, not drinking wine. But what about the one who's weak and just are weak financially and they're struggling? You then who are strong and have this need or have the means, you meet the need. What about the one who has a certain weakness to a particular temptation? We come along and we help them. Whatever is causing your brother or sister, I'm using brother general here, to be tripped up in his walk with Christ, those who are mature in the faith, we have an obligation to help them overcome. We must seek to serve our neighbor rather than focus on our own rights. So the solution is very clear. Paul said in verse 2, let each of us please his neighbor for his good. Don't please yourself. Don't focus on yourself or your desires or your rights or your agenda. Sometimes I've been in churches before where they would focus, they'd pit the old people against the young people. I'm like, come on, man, we're one body. Don't focus on your own agenda. Instead, focus on your neighbor, on how he may be built up in the faith, edified. How he's going to be strengthened and made mature. Because that's the goal. Weak believers shouldn't stay weak. But we have, a help, we have an opportunity and obligation to help them. They, they grow strong in the faith. So I would tell the church today, spend your energy helping your brother being built up in our most holy faith. Now he's saying this to these Christians. Here's the part that I would find hard if I'm the strong believer in Romans. They are using their freedom and their rights that are lawful. They really are free. And he says, stop doing that. And you know what the question is? Why should I have to stop doing what's okay? Paul said, because it's harming those within the church. They've not yet arrived at, their, at your understanding. You're mature and they're not. And kingdom greatness is found in service rather than indulgence. But that's just the opposite of the culture in which we live. I mean, think about all the ways. I mean, you hear YOLO. Y'all know what YOLO is. You only live once, right? You see that sometimes. Hashtag YOLO. Or you do you. Or do what makes you happy. And just do whatever makes you happy. So the idea, Christian, of suspending your rights that you legitimately have to serve another is foreign and anathema. It's cursed in the kingdom of man. But Christ has called us out of that kingdom. He's called us out of that, into, which is where we once lived. We all sought our own pleasure. But he's placed us in his kingdom where we are to do what? Seek the good of your brother. That's your preoccupation. And Paul gives an example how this works. Look at verse 3. For even Christ did not please himself, but as written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Has there ever been anyone more free than the Lord Jesus? You want to talk about rights? Who had more rights than he? Has there everyone who's ever had the right to demand that others serve him more than he? Has there ever been anyone that's more worthy of service than he? So when we consider our Lord and we look at him, if anyone deserved to be served, if anyone deserved honor and glory and all the adulation of mankind, it was the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. But what do we find him doing? Look at his life. And friends, it's deeply convicting. We find him picking up a towel and washing the dirty feet of his disciples. 
Now at that time, if a rabbi had disciples, because there's many rabbis there, it was not uncommon for the rabbi to look at his disciples as servants. But even these disciples were never required to wash the rabbi's feet. Much less would you ever find a rabbi washing disciples' feet. Change of order there, you wouldn't do it. Jewish law said if a man had a Jewish slave or servant, then that man, that owner, was prohibited from making that Jewish slave from washing his feet. He didn't have to do it. The only slave who was required by law to wash feet were Gentile slaves. So only the lowest man in the lowest social strata was required to do the most menial of tasks. And here our Lord, worthy of honor and glory, does for his disciples what no one else was willing to do. John 13. Jesus rose from supper. He laid aside his garments. There's a lot of theological implication there. He took a towel and girded himself. So he's dressed like a slave now. After that, he poured water into a basin and he began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel which with, with which he was girded. He laid aside his clothes and he's dressed in the garment of a slave. He's the true servant of Isaiah 53, 52, 54. He takes a towel and he begins to wash and clean the feet of these men. Dusty feet. They wore open sandals. Dirty feet. But not just dusty and dirty. Dirty, they lived in dirt roads. So feet with mud and probably fecal matter. Animals also walked along that same dirt road. That's why no one wanted to do it. It was gross. And Jesus, the second member of the Holy Trinity, began to perform the lowest duty of the lowest slave. The king of kings makes himself the slave of slaves. And you're like, that's incredible. But it doesn't end there. He further humbles himself, submitting to the horrible, ignominious death of Calvary. We fast forward six chapters in John. And Pilate said to the Jews, behold your king. But they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. Then he delivered him to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus, they led him away, and he, bearing his cross, went out to a place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified him. Now stop for just a moment. This is the Lord in whose steps you and I are called to follow. So you want to talk about your rights? The Lord told his disciples, the servant's not greater than his master. This is the man whose feet that we're to walk in, whose steps. And Paul goes on, back to the text in verse 3 and 4. He says, as it is written, the approaches of those who approached you fell on me. For whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. That's Psalm 69 which other places in the New Testament is also attributed to Christ. So Paul is taking Psalm, that Psalm 69, and he's applying it to the life of our Lord. What's the point? That the Lord Jesus knew full well what awaited him in the Incarnation. He was not surprised at the suffering that would await him. And yet he came, willing to suffer insult 
and reproach in order to honor his father. He gladly gave up the use of his divine rights to bear reproach in obedience to his father's plan. He made his mission. What is he going to do? I will come to serve, not to be served. And Paul is talking to the church. Remember, there's two groups that are battling each other. I'm sure they're getting convicted by this point. Paul is using our Lord as an example, and he tells the strong brothers, because he knows that they're more mature in the face. He said, now listen, you do the same. You forego your rights in order to serve your brother. You're a disciple of Christ. That means for a time, for a time, you may have to give up some food. You may not be able to drink that glass of wine in their presence. You may have to help them grow in maturity. But you do it because you're concerned about them. Look to Christ. Follow him. And notice that Paul said the things were written before were written so that we could learn and have hope. By reading the Old Testament, because that's what it's referring to there, they could see, all the strong believers could see, that following the Lord has never been easy. The people of God have always been called to lay down our lives in service of our king. I mean, think of some of the eminent prophets that we revere. Let's just think of two. Jeremiah. We, we read Jeremiah and we know him as the weeping prophet. He wrote Jeremiah. He wrote Lamentations. Lament. He's the weeping prophet. All his life is one of tears. Terribly difficult. Terribly painful life. But what about Isaiah? Isaiah is the most Christ-centered prophet of the Old Testament. Glorious passages there. Later, this man Isaiah would be cut in two, sawn in two for his faithfulness to God. Paul says, go back and read. Serving God has never been easy. It's always called for self-denial, always. So as you read through the scriptures, that might give you a little bit of um, anxiety. He said, no, because we see God's faithfulness to his people. And that fills us with hope. Mamre, you and I will not be the first generation of believers who will undergo difficulty in serving God. You're not. Cost us all at some level. Minimally, it will cost us comfort. There are awkward moments in ministry. There are difficulties to endure. And there will be rights that must be laid down when you feel it's not fair. Maybe it's not. Look to Christ. Remember, all the people of God had to endure suffering and trial at some point. All have been called to lay down their lives in self-denial. And that's what Paul's saying here to the church at Rome. He said the same, this same um, pattern you saw in Christ, seek to emulate it now. And Paul's exhorting us today too. Kingdom greatness, remember? It is found in seeking the welfare of others more than your own. And Paul closes with a prayer. Look at verses 5 and 6. This is a prayer. He's praying for the Roman church. Now may the God of patience and comfort... Same words he just used. Grant you to be like-minded toward one another according to Christ Jesus. That you may be with one mind and one mouth glorify God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now Paul just said that the scriptures give the saints patience and comfort. Now he's calling God the God of patience and comfort. Why? Because God is the source, but the scriptures are the medium by which that comes. Paul's prayer for unity here, it's, it's very instructive. He's not saying, uh, his, as we're closing here, he's not saying that the stronger brother and the weaker brother need to think the same thing. They're not going to. 
He's not even, say that, he's not even saying, well, I hope one day you can come to the same conclusion on these non-essential matters. They're not going to. There, let me just say this. There will never be a time when all believers think exactly the same thing on debated issues. So stop trying. We're not cookie cutters. We're talking about things that aren't explicitly revealed. I, mean, I just think in our day, I mean, unfortunately, the political season's coming fast upon us, and it kind of drives me crazy. But um, there's not, you know what, there will not, we will not all think the same thing politically in this church. Yet, despite our differences, we are called to be united. Called to be united. So the prayer for unity is that believers might come to a perspective, listen to this, where they realize they are all united in their devotion and service to Christ. We all come from different backgrounds, different thoughts, different perspectives. But we're one in Christ. And we have the same body and the same blood and the same table. So prayer for unity is that you might understand that we have different scruples and opinions on peripheral issues, but there's a common faith in Christ. A common goal. That's what I have in common when we travel throughout Latin America where you go to Africa, I've gone to several places throughout the world. Very, very different experiences but a common faith and a common Christ. This is the unity Paul prayed for. I want you to notice it comes by grace. Look at the text. They did not, these believers did not have the resources in themselves. This was not something they could just drum up in and of themselves. He prays that God would grant. Greek words to give. God's giving this. Them to be like-minded. What? What do you mean, Paul? The result, here's the result. Look at it carefully. Believers would have one mind, one mouth for one goal, the glory of God. Doug Moo says, only when the Roman community is united, only when the Christians in Rome can act with one accord and speak with one voice, will they be able to glorify God in the way he deserves to be glorified. Amen. Oh, friends, this is what I'm saying. It matters not these peripheral issues. Seek Christ. Seek his kingdom. There can be harmony within the church because of the common faith in a common Lord with a common goal. One mind, one mouth, one goal. That brings unity. Many different opinions. So now what? There's a 17th century quote that you probably heard that I think is so apropos here this morning. In essentials, unity. Essentials, these are doctrine. In non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, charity. Ephesians 3, there is one body, amen, one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. You think you know what Paul's trying to say? There's one, guys, we're one. And today we come to the table and celebrate that. If you are in Christ, this is the calling that God has placed upon you and your life for this time. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Lord, I thank you for your word. Lord, deeply convicting, Lord. Father, if we would seriously understand and take heed and live in step with the spirit that you've given to us, Lord, there would be harmony. There'd be harmony within the home if husband and wife would seek to outdo each other in serving one another. Lord, in the church, if we could say that we're not seeking our own agenda or our own particular viewpoint, not trying to make others um, see our viewpoint. Lord, there would be harmony. But alas, we struggle with pride. The pride that wants to be vindicated and the pride that wants to be right. And Lord God, I struggle with this. 
Father, help us, Lord, crucified. Lord, may this, may this pride of our, of our hearts be mortified, Father. Lord, the spirit that was in Christ, upon Christ, that led him to the cross, would you let this same mind be in us, which was also in Christ Jesus. Father, change us from a people who love to be served to those who love to serve. God, this is an act of grace. It is marvelous in our eyes. Thank you, Lord, for the work that you're doing. Lord, don't give up on us. Continue, Lord. Conform us to the image of your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen.